This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear No Place for You, My Love by Eudora Welty, which was published in The New Yorker in September of 1952. The heat faced them. It was ahead. They could see it waving at them, shaken in the air above the white of the road, always at a certain distance ahead, shimmering finely as a cloth, with running edges of green and gold, fire and azure. It's never anything like this in Syracuse, he said. Or in Toledo, either, she replied with dry lips. The story was chosen by Allegra Goodman, whose books include The Family Markowitz and The Chalk Artist. Hi, Allegra. Hi. So you have chosen a story by Eudora Welty. What, what has her work meant to you? I started reading her when I was just a kid. In fact, my dad used to read aloud to our family, and he read some of her funnier stories, like Why I Live at the P.O. and Petrified Van and some of her comic stuff. And we would all sit around and laugh, and you know, I just fell in love with her. So this particular story, uh, No Place for You, My Love, is it one that your father read to you? Is it something you came across later? This is something I came across later. Um, and it's a different mode for her. It's it, it, There's still her humor and her wit coming through, but it's a different mood. Yeah, there isn't a lot of dialogue and plot in this one. <laughs> right. It's more tonal. In some places, it feels like a poem. It's so evocative, just the way she sets the scene. The place <laughs> becomes a character. And although there isn't a lot of spoken dialogue, there's a lot of unspoken dialogue in this story, which is very interesting to me. You know, she is a great writer, so she has many sides to her. Yeah. What do you think makes this particular story stand out? I think this story, it's a very simple story. It's its not a story with a tight plot or a comic riff in it. It's a story about two people who take a drive and explore a new place. And um, that place becomes the third character in kind of a love triangle. The story feels like a tango between the man, the woman who are named and this place south of New Orleans. This is a story that feels Chekhovian in a way. If, if anyone has read a story called Lady with a Lapdog um, mm-hmm. about a man and a woman encountering each other in an unfamiliar place in Yalta, it has that kind of modernist, very subtle, very wry, very poignant tone to it that Chekhov had. And it mm-hmm. also makes me think that great story writers like um, Alice Munro learned a lot from Eudora Welty. Yeah, it has that very slow pacing mm. in which things happen abruptly. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. That's very well put. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Allegra Goodman reading No Place for You, My Love by Eudora Welty. No Place for You, My Love. They were strangers to each other, both fairly well strangers to the place, now seated side by side at luncheon, a party combined in a free and easy way when the friends he and she were with recognized each other across galatoires. The time was a Sunday in summer, those hours of afternoon that seemed time out in New Orleans. The moment he saw her little, blunt, fair face, he thought that here was a woman who was having an affair. It was one of those odd meetings when such an impact is felt that it has to be translated at once into some sort of speculation. With a married man, most likely, he supposed, slipping quickly into a groove. He was long married and feeling more conventional then in his curiosity as she sat there, leaning her cheek on her hand, looking no further before her than the flowers on the table and wearing that hat. He did not like her hat any more than he liked tropical flowers. It was the wrong hat for her, thought this eastern businessman who had no interest whatever in women's clothes and no eye for them. He thought the unaccustomed thing crossly. It must stick out all over me, she thought so people think they can love me or hate me just by looking at me. How did it leave us? The old, safe, slow way people used to know of learning how one another feels, and the privilege that went with it of shying away, if it seemed best. People in love like me, I suppose, give away the shortcuts to everybody's secrets. Something, though, he decided, had been settled about her predicament, for the time being, anyway. The parties to it were all still alive, no doubt. Nevertheless, her predicament was the only one he felt so sure of here, like the only recognizable shadow in that restaurant where mirrors and fans were busy agitating the light, 
as the very local talk drawled across and agitated the peace. The shadow lay between her fingers, between her little square hand and her cheek, like something always best carried about the person. Then suddenly, as she took her hand down, the secret fact was still there. It lighted her. It was a bold and full light, shot up under the brim of that hat, as close to them all as flowers in the center of the table. Did he dream of making her disloyal to that hopelessness that he saw very well she'd been cultivating down here? He knew very well that he did not. What they amounted to was two northerners keeping each other company. She glanced up at the big gold clock on the wall and smiled. He didn't smile back. She had that naive face that he associated for no good reason with the Middle West. Because it said, show me, perhaps. It was a serious, now watch out everybody face, which orphaned her entirely in the company of these Southerners. He guessed her age, as he could not guess theirs, 32. He himself was further along. Of all human moods, deliberate imperviousness may be the most quickly communicated. It may be the most successful, most fatal signal of all. And two people can indulge in imperviousness as well as in anything else. You're not very hungry either, he said. The blades of fan shadows came down over their two heads as he saw inadvertently in the mirror with himself smiling at her now like a villain. His remark sounded dominant and rude enough for everybody present to listen back a moment. It even sounded like an answer to a question she might have just asked him. The other women glanced at him. The southern look, southern mask of life is a dream irony, which could turn to pure challenge at the drop of a hat. He could wish well away. He liked naivete better. I find the heat down here depressing, she said, with the heart of Ohio in her voice. Well, I'm in somewhat of a temper about it, too, he said. They looked with grateful dignity at each other. I have a car here just down the street, he said to her, as the luncheon party was rising to leave, all the others wanting to get back to their houses and sleep. It's all right. With Have you ever driven down south of here? Out on Bourbon Street, in the bath of July, she asked his shoulder, South of New Orleans? I didn't know there was any south to here. Does it just go on and on? She laughed and adjusted the exasperating hat to her head in a different way. It was more than frivolous. It was conspicuous, with some sort of glitter or flitter tied in a band round the straw and hanging down. That's what I'm going to show you. Oh, you've been there? No. His voice rang out over the uneven, narrow sidewalk and dropped back from the walls. The flaked-off colored houses were spotted like the hides of beasts, faded and shy, and were hot as a wall of growth that seemed to breathe flower-like down on them as they walked to the car parked there. It's just that it couldn't be any worse. We'll see. All right, then, she said. We will. So their actions reduced to amiability. They settled into the car, a faded red Ford convertible with a rather threadbare canvas top, which had been standing in the sun for all those lunch hours. It's rented, he explained. I asked to have the top put down and was told I'd lost my mind. It's out of this world, degrading heat, she said, and added, doesn't matter. The stranger in New Orleans always sets out to leave it as though following the clue in a maze. They were threading through the narrow and one-way streets, past the pale violet bloom of tired squares, the brown steeples and statues, the balcony with the live and probably famous black monkey dipping along the railing as over a ballroom floor, past the grillwork and the latticework to all the iron swans, painted flesh color on the front steps of bungalows outlying. Driving, he spread his new map and put his finger down on it. At the intersection marked Araby, where their road led out of the tangle, and he took it, a small negro seated beneath a black umbrella astride a box-chalked shoeshine, lifted his pink and black hand and waved them languidly goodbye. She didn't miss it and waved back. Below New Orleans, there was a raging of insects from both sides of the concrete highway, not quite together, like the playing of separated marching bands. The river and the levee were still on her side, waste and jungle and some occasional settlements on his, poorhouses. Families bigger than housefuls thronged the yards. His nodding, driving head would veer from side to side, looking and almost lowering. 
As time passed and the distance from New Orleans grew, girls ever darker and younger were disposing themselves over the porches and the porch steps. With jet-black hair pulled high and ragged palm-leaf fans rising and falling like rafts of butterflies, the children running forth were nearly always naked ones. She watched the road. Crayfish constantly crossed in front of the wheels, looking grim and bonneted, in a great hurry. How the old woman got home, she murmured to herself. He pointed as it flew by at a saucepan full of cut zinnias, which stood waiting on the open lid of a mailbox at the roadside, with a little note tied onto the handle. They rode mostly in silence. The sun bore down. They met fishermen and other men bent on some local pursuits, some in sulfur-colored pants, walking and riding. Met wagons, trucks, boats in trucks, autos, boats on top of autos, all coming to meet them, as though something of high moment were doing back where their car came from, and he and she were determined to miss it. There was nearly always a man lying with his shoes off in the bed of any truck otherwise empty, with the raw red look of a man sleeping in the daytime, being jolted about as he slept. Then there was a sort of dead man's land where nobody came. He loosened his collar and tie. By rushing through the heat at high speed, they brought themselves the effect of fans turned onto their cheeks. Clearing alternated with jungle and cane break, like something tried, tried again. Little shell roads led off on both sides. Now and then a road of planks led into the yellow green. Like a dance floor in there, she pointed. He informed her, in there's your oil, I think. There were thousands, millions of mosquitoes and gnats, a universe of them, and on the increase, a family of eight or nine people on foot strung along the road in the same direction the car was going, beating themselves with the wild palmettos. Heels, shoulders, knees, breasts, back of the heads, elbows, hands were touched in turn, like some game, each playing it with himself. He struck himself on the forehead and increased their speed. His wife would not be at her most charitable if he came bringing malaria home to the family. More and more crayfish and other shell creatures littered their path, scuttling or dragging. These little samples, little jokes of creation, persisted and sometimes perished. The more of them, the deeper down the road went. Terrapins and turtles came up steadily over the horizons of the ditches. Back there in the margins were worse, crawling hides you could not penetrate with bullets or quite believe, grins that had come down from the primeval mud. Wake up! Her northern nudge was very timely on his arm. They had veered toward the side of the road. Still driving fast, he spread his map. Like a misplaced sunrise, the light of the river flowed up. They were mounting the levee on a little shell road. Shall we cross here? he asked politely. He might have been keeping track over years and miles of how long they could keep that tiny ferry waiting. Now skidding down the levee's flank, they were the last-minute car, the last possible car that could squeeze on. Under the sparse shade of one willow tree, the small, amateurish-looking boat slapped the water as expertly he wedged on board. "'Tell him we put him on hubcap!' shouted one of the numerous, olive-skinned, dark-eyed young boys, standing dressed up in bright shirts at the railing, hugging each other with delight that that last straw was on board. Another boy drew his affectionate initials in the dust of the door on her side. She opened the door and stepped out, and after only a moment standing at bay, started up a little iron stairway. She appeared above the car on the tiny bridge beneath the captain's window and the whistle. From there, while the boat still delayed in what seemed a trance, as if it were too full to attempt the start, she could see the pan-like deck below, separated by its rusty rim from the tilting, polished water. The passengers, walking and jostling about there, appeared oddly amateurish, too. Amateur travelers. They were having such a good time. They all knew each other. Beer was being passed around in cans. Bets were being loudly settled and new bets made about local and special subjects on which they all doted. One red-haired man, in a burst of wildness, even tried to give away his truckload of shrimp to a man on the other side of the boat. Nearly all the trucks were full of shrimp, causing taunts and then protests of, they good, they good, from the giver. 
The young boys leaned on each other, thinking of what next, rolling their eyes absently. A radio pricked the air behind her. Looking like a great tomcat just above her head, the captain was digesting the news of a fine stolen automobile. At last, a tremendous explosion burst. The whistle. Everything shuddered in outline from the sound. Everybody said something. Everybody else. It started with no perceptible motion, but her hat blew off. It went spiraling to the deck below, where he, thank heaven, sprang out of the car and picked it up. Everybody looked frankly up at her now, holding her hands to her head. The little willow tree receded as its shade was taken away. The heat was like something falling on her head. She held the hot rail before her. It was like riding a stove. Her shoulders dropping, her hair flying, her skirt buffeted by the sudden strong wind. She stood there thinking they all must see that with her entire self, all she did was wait. Her set hands with the bag that hung from her wrist and rocked back and forth. All three seemed objects bleaching there, belonging to no one. She could not feel a thing in the skin of her face. Perhaps she was crying and not knowing it. She could look down and see him just below her, his black shadow, her hat, and his black hair. His hair in the wind looked unreasonably long and rippling. Little did he know that from here it had a red undergleam like an animal's. When she looked up and outward, a vortex of light drove through and over the brown waves like a star in the water. He did, after all, bring the retrieved hat up the stairs to her. She took it back wordlessly and held it to her skirt. What they were saying below was more polite than their searchlight faces. Where do you think he come from, that man? I bet he come from Lafitte. Lafitte, what you bet, eh? All crouched in the shade of trucks, squatting and laughing. Now his shadow fell partly across her. The boat had jolted into some other strand of current. Her shaded arm and shaded hand felt pulled out from the blaze of light and water, and she hoped humbly for more shade for her head. It had seemed so natural to climb up and stand in the sun. The boys had a surprise, an alligator on board. One of them pulled it by a chain around the deck, between the cars and trucks, like a toy, a hide that could walk. He thought, well, they had to catch one sometime. It's Sunday afternoon, so they have him on board now, riding him across the Mississippi River. The playfulness of it beset everybody on the ferry. The hoarseness of the boat whistle, commenting briefly, seemed part of the general appreciation. Who want to wrestle him? Who want to, eh? Two boys cried, looking up. A boy with shrimp-colored arms capered from side to side, pretending to have been bitten. What was there so hilarious about jaws that could bite? And what danger was there once in this repulsiveness, so that the last worldly evidence of some old heroic horror of the dragon had to be paraded and capture before the eyes of country clowns? He noticed that she looked at the alligator without flinching at all. Her distance was set. The number of feet and inches between herself and it mattered to her. Perhaps her measuring coolness was to him what his bodily shade was to her, while they stood pat up there riding the river, which felt like the sea and looked like the earth under them, full of the red-brown earth charged with it. Ahead of the boat, it was like an exposed vein of ore. The river seemed to swell in the vast middle with the curve of the earth. The sun rolled under them. As if in memory of the size of things, uprooted trees were drawn across their path sawing at the air and tumbling one over the other. When they reached the other side, they felt that they had been racing around an arena in their chariot among lions. The whistle took and shook the stairs as they went down. The young boys, looking taller, had taken out colored combs and were combing their wet hair back in solemn pompadour above their radiant foreheads. They had been bathing in the river themselves not long before. The cars and trucks, then the foot passengers, and the alligator, waddling like a child to school, all disembarked and wound up the weed-sprung levee. Both respectable and merciful, their hides, she thought, forcing herself to dwell on the alligator as she looked back. Deliver us all from the naked in heart, as she had been told. When they regained their paved road, he heard her give a little sigh, and saw her turn her straw-colored head to look back once more. Now that she rode with her hat in her lap, her earrings were conspicuous, too. A little metal ball set with small pale stones 
danced beside each square, faintly downy cheek. Had she felt a wish for someone else to be riding with them? He thought it was more likely that she would wish for her husband, if she had one, his wife's voice, than for the lover in whom he believed. Whatever people liked to think, situations, if not scenes, were usually three-way. There was somebody else, always. The one who didn't, couldn't, understand the two, made the formidable third. He glanced down at the map, flapping on the seat between them, up at his wristwatch, out at the road. Out there was the incredible brightness of four o'clock. On this side of the river, the road ran beneath the brow of the levee and followed it. Here was a heat that ran deeper and brighter and more intense than all the rest, its nerve. The road grew one with the heat as if it was one with the unseen river. Dead snakes stretched across the concrete like markers, inlaid mosaic bands, dry as feathers, which their tires licked at intervals that began to seem clock-like. No, the heat faced them. It was ahead. They could see it waving at them, shaken in the air above the white of the road, always at a certain distance ahead, shimmering finely as a cloth, with running edges of green and gold, fire and azure. It's never anything like this in Syracuse, he said. Or in Toledo, either, she replied with dry lips. They were driving through greater waste down here, through fewer and even more insignificant towns. There was water under everything. Even where a screen of jungle had been left to stand, Splashes could be heard from under the trees. In the vast open, sometimes boats moved inch by inch through what appeared endless meadows of rubbery flowers. Her eyes overcome with brightness and size, she felt a panic rise, as sudden as nausea. Just how far below questions and answers, concealment and revelation they were running now, that was still a new question, with a power of its own, waiting. How dear, how costly could this ride be? It looks to me like your road can't go much further, she remarked cheerfully. Just over there, it's all water. Time out, he said, and with that he turned the car into a sudden road of white shells that rushed at them narrowly out of the left. They bolted over a cattle guard, where some rayed and crested purple flowers burst out of the vines in the ditch and rolled onto a long, narrow, green, mowed clearing, a churchyard. A paved track ran between two short rows of raised tombs, all neatly whitewashed and now brilliant as faces against the vast, flushed sky. The track was the width of the car with a few inches to spare. He passed between the tombs slowly, but in the manner of a feat. Names took their places on the walls, slowly at a level with the eyes, names as near as the eyes of a person stopping in conversation, and as far away in origin and in all their music and dead longing as Spain. At intervals were set packed bouquets of zinnias, oleanders, and some kind of purple flowers, all quite fresh, in fruit jars, like nice welcomes on bureaus. They moved on into an open plot beyond, of violent green grass, spread before the green and white framed church with worked flower beds around it, flowerless poinsettias growing up to the windowsills. Beyond was a house, and left on the doorstep of the house, a fresh-caught catfish the size of a baby, a fish wearing whiskers and bleeding. On a clothesline in the yard, a priest's black gown on a hanger hung airing, swaying at man's height, in a vague, train-like, lady-like sweep along an evening breath that might otherwise have seemed imaginary from the unseen, felt river. With the motor cut off, with the raging of the insects about them, they sat looking out at the green and white and black and red and pink as they leaned against the sides of the car. What is your wife like? she asked. His right hand came up and spread, iron, wooden, manicured. She lifted her eyes to his face. He looked at her like that hand. Then he lit a cigarette, and the portrait and the right hand testimonial it made were blown away. She smiled, herself as unaffected as if by some stage performance, and he was annoyed in the cemetery. They did not risk going on to her husband if she had one. Under the supporting post of the priest's house where a boat was, solid ground ended, and palmettos and water hyacinths could not wait to begin. Suddenly the rays of the sun from behind the car reached that lowness and struck the flowers. The priest came out onto the porch in his underwear, stared at the car a moment as if he wondered what time it was, 
then collected his robe off the line and his fish off the doorstep and returned inside. Vespers was next for him. After backing out between the tombs, he drove on, still south, in the sunset. They caught up with an old man walking in a sprightly way in their direction, all by himself, wearing a clean, bright shirt printed with a pair of palm trees fanning green over his chest. It might better be a big-colored woman's shirt, but she didn't have it. He flagged the car with gestures like hoops. You're coming to the end of the road, the old man told them. He pointed ahead, tipped his hat to the lady, and pointed again. End of the road! They didn't understand that he meant take me. They drove on. If we go any further, it'll have to be by water. Is that it? He asked her, hesitating at this odd point. You know better than I do, she replied politely. The road had for some time ceased to be paved. It was made of shells. It was leading into a small, sparse settlement, like the others a few miles back, but with even more of the camp about it. On the lip of the clearing, directly before a green willow blaze with the sunset gone behind it, the row of houses and shacks faced out on broad, colored, moving water that stretched to reach the horizon and looked like an arm of the sea. The houses on their shaggy posts, patchily built, some with plank runways instead of steps, were flimsy and alike, and not much bigger than the boats tied up at the landing. Venice, she heard him announce, and he dropped the crackling map in her lap. They rolled down the brief remainder. The end of the road. She could not remember ever seeing a road simply end. It was a spoon shape, with a tree stump in the bowl to turn around by. Around it, he stopped the car, and they stepped out feeling put down in the midst of a sudden vast pause or subduement that was like a yawn. They made their way on foot toward the water, where at an idle-looking landing, men in twos and threes stood with their backs to them. The nearness of darkness, the still uncut trees, bright water partly under a sheet of flowers, shacks, silence, dark shapes of boats tied up, then the first sounds of people just on the other side of thin walls, all this reached them, Mounds of shells like day-old snow, pink-tinted, lay around a central shack with a beer sign on it. An old man up on the porch there sat holding an open newspaper with a fat white goose sitting opposite him on the floor. Below in the now shadowless and sunless open, another old man with a colored pencil bright under his hat brim could still see to mend a sail. Just beyond the trees, enormous, tangerine-colored, it was going solidly up, other lights, just striking into view, looking farther distant, showed moss shapes hanging or slipped and broke match-like on the water that so encroached upon the rib of ground they were standing on. There was a touch at her arm, his, accidental. We're at the jumping-off place, he said. She laughed, having thought his hand was a bat, while her eyes rushed downward toward a great pale drift of water hyacinths, still partly open, flushed and yet moonlit, level with her feet through which paths of water for the boats had been hacked. She drew her hands up to her face under the brim of her hat. Her own cheeks felt like the hyacinths to her, all her skin still full of too much light and sky, exposed. The harsh vesper bell was ringing. I believe there must be something wrong with me that I came on this excursion to begin with, she said, as if he had already said this and she were merely in hopeful, willing, maddening agreement with him. He took hold of her arm and said, oh, come on, I see we can get something to drink here at least. But there was a beating muffled sound from over the darkening water. One more boat was coming in, making its way through the tenacious, tough, dark flower traps by the shaken light of what first appeared to be torches. He and she waited for the boat as if on each other's patience, as if borne in on a mist of twilight or a breath, a horde of mosquitoes and gnats came singing and striking at them first. The boat bumped. Men laughed. Somebody was offering somebody else some shrimp. Then he might have cocked his dark city head down at her. She did not look up at him, only turned when he did. Now the shell mounds, like the shacks and trees, were solid purple. Lights had appeared in the not-quite-true window squares. A narrow neon sign, the lone sign, had come out in bright blush on the beer shack's roof, Baba's place. A light was on the porch. The barn-like interior was brightly lit and unpainted, looking not quite finished, with a partition dividing it. 
One of the four card players at a table in the middle of the floor was a newspaper reader. The paper was in his pants pocket. Midway along the partition was a bar, in the form of a pass-through to the other room, with a varnished second-hand fretwork overhang. He and she crossed the floor and sat alone there on wooden stools. An eruption of humorous signs, newspaper cutouts and cartoons, razor-blade cards, and personal messages of significance to the owner or his friends decorated the overhang, framing where Baba should have been but wasn't. Through there came a smell of garlic and cloves and red pepper. A blast of hot cloud escaped from a cauldron they could see now on a stove at the back of the other room. A massive back, presumably female, with a twist of gray hair on top, stood with a ladle akimbo. A young man joined her and with his fingers stole something out of the pot and ate it. At Baba's they were boiling shrimp. When he got ready to wait on them, Baba strolled out to the counter young, black-headed, and in very good humor. Coldest beer you've got. And food? What will you have? Nothing for me, thank you, she said. I'm not sure I could eat after all. Well, I could, he said, shoving his jaw out. Baba smiled. I want a good, solid ham sandwich. I could have asked him for some water, she said after he had gone. While they sat waiting, it seemed very quiet. The bubbling of the shrimp the distant laughing of Baba and the slap of cards, like the beating of moths on the screens, seemed to come in fits and starts. The steady breathing they heard came from a big rough dog asleep in the corner. But it was bright. Electric lights were strung riotously over the room from a kind of spiderweb of old wires in the rafters. One of the written messages tacked before them read, Joe, at the boy! It looked very yellow, older than Baba's place. Outside, the world was pure dark. Two little boys, almost alike, almost the same size, and just cleaned up, dived into the room with a double bang of the screen door and circled around the card table. They ran their hands into the men's pockets. Nickel for some pop! Nickel for some pop! Go away and let me play you! They circled round and shrieked at the dog, ran under the lid of the counter and raced through the kitchen and back and hung over the stools at the bar. One child had a live lizard on his shirt clinging like a breastpin, like lapis lazuli. Bringing in a strong odor of geranium talcum, some men had come in now, all in bright shirts. They drew near the counter or stood and watched the game. When Baba came out bringing the beer and sandwich, could I have some water, she greeted him. Baba laughed at everybody. She decided the woman back there must be Baba's mother. Beside her, he was drinking his beer and eating his sandwich, ham, cheese, tomato, pickle, and mustard. Before he finished, one of the men who had come in beckoned from across the room. It was the old man in the palm tree shirt. She lifted her head to watch him leave her and was looked at from all over the room. As a minute passed, no cards were laid down. In a far-off way, like accepting the light from Arcturus, she accepted it that she was more beautiful or perhaps more fragile than the women they saw every day of their lives. It was just this thought coming into a woman's face and at this hour that seemed familiar to them. Baba was smiling. He'd set an open, frosted brown bottle before her on the counter and a thick sandwich and stood looking at her. Baba made her eat some supper for what she was. What the old fellow wanted, said he when he came back at last, was to have a friend of his apologize. Seems church is just out. Seems the friend made a remark coming in just now. His pals told him there was a lady present. I see you bought him a beer, she said. Well, the old man looked like he wanted something. All at once, the jukebox interrupted from back in the corner with the same old song as anywhere. The half dozen slot machines along the wall were suddenly all run to like maypoles and thrown into action, taken over by further battalions of little boys. There were three little boys to each slot machine. The local custom appeared to be that one pulled the lever for the friend he was holding up to put the nickel in, while the third covered the pictures with a flat of his hand as they fell into place, so it surprised them all if anything happened. The dog lay sleeping on in front of the raging jukebox, his ribs working fast as a concertina's. At the side of the room, a man with a cap on his white thatch was trying his best to open a side screen door, but it was stuck fast. It was he who had come in with a remark considered ribald. Now he was trying to get out the other way. Moths as thick as ingots were trying to get in. The card players broke into shouts of derision, then joy, then tired derision among themselves. 
They might have been here all afternoon. They were the only ones not cleaned up and shaved. The original pair of little boys ran in once more with a hyphenated bang. They got nickels this time, then were brushed away from the table like mosquitoes, and they rushed under the counter and onto the cauldron behind, clinging to Baba's mother there. The evening was at the threshold. They were quite unnoticed now. He was eating another sandwich, and she, having finished part of hers, was fanning her face with her hat. Baba had lifted the flap of the counter and came out into the room. Behind his head there was a sign lettered in orange crayon, Shrimp Dance, Sun, P.M. That was tonight, still to be. And suddenly she made a move to slide down from her stool, maybe wishing to walk out into that nowhere down the front steps to be cool a moment, but he had hold of her hand. He got down from his stool and patiently reversing her hand in his own, just as she had had the look of being about to give up, faint, began moving her, leading her. They were dancing. I get to thinking this is what we get, what you and I deserve, she whispered, looking past his shoulder into the room. And all the time, it's real. It's a real place, way off down here. He patted her between the shoulder blades. He at one time had got to thinking it was symbolic or something, but it would outdo her to say so. They danced gratefully, formally, to some song carried on in what must be the local patois, while no one paid any attention as long as they were together, and the children poured the family nickels steadily into the slot machines, walloping the handles down with regular crashes and troubling nobody with winning. She said rapidly as they began moving together too well, one of those clippings was an account of a shooting right here. I guess they're proud of it, and that awful knife Baba was carrying. I wonder what he called me, she whispered in his ear. Who? The one who apologized to you. If they had ever been going to overstep themselves, it would be now, as he held her closer and turned her, when she became aware that he could not help but see the bruise at her temple. It would not be six inches from his eyes. She felt it come out like an evil star. Let it pay him back, then, for the hand he had stuck in her face when she tried once to be sympathetic, when she'd asked about his wife. They danced on still, as the record changed, after standing wordless and motionless, linked together in the middle of the room for the moment between. Then they were like a match team, like professional Spanish dancers wearing masks while the slow piece was playing. Surely even those immune from the world, for the time being, need the touch of one another, or all is lost. Their arms encircling each other, their bodies circling the odorous, just-nailed-down floor, they were at last imperviousness in motion. They had found it, and had almost missed it. They had had to dance. They were what their separate hearts desired that day, for themselves and each other. They were so good together that once she looked up and half-smiled, for whose benefit did we have to show off? Like people in love, they had a superstition about themselves almost as soon as they came out on the floor and dared not think the words happy or unhappy, which might strike them one or the other like lightning. In the thickening heat, they danced on while Baba himself sang with a mosquito-voiced singer in the chorus of Moi pas l'aime ça, enumerating the saws with a hot shrimp between his fingers. He was counting over the platters the old woman now sat on the counter each heaped with shrimp in their shells, boiled to iridescence, like mounds of honeysuckle flowers. The goose wandered in from the back room, under the lid of the counter, and hitched itself around the floor among the table legs and people's legs, never seeing that it was neatly avoided by two dancers, who nevertheless vaguely thought of this goose as learned, having earlier heard an old man read to it. The children called it Mimi and lured it away, the old thatched man was again drunkenly trying to get out by the stuck side door. Now he gave it a kick, but was prevailed on to remain. The sleeping dog shuddered and snored. It was left up to the dancers to provide nickels for the jukebox. Baba kept a drawer full for every use. They had grown fond of all the selections by now. This was the music you heard out of the distance at night, out of the roadside taverns you fled past, around the late corners and cities half asleep drifting up from the carnival over the hill, with one odd little strain always managing to repeat itself. This seemed a homey place. Bathed in sweat and feeling the false coolness that brings, they stood finally on the porch in the lapping night air for a moment before leaving. 
The first arrivals of the girls were coming up the steps under the porch light, all flowered fronts, their black pompadours giving out breath-like feelers from sheer abundance. Where they'd resprinkled it since church, the talcum shone like mica on their downy arms. Smelling solidly of geranium, they filed across the porch with short steps and fingers joined, just time to turn their smiles loose inside the room. He held the door open for them. Ready to go, he asked her. Going back, the ride was wordless, quiet except for the motor and the insects driving themselves against the car. The windshield was soon blinded. The headlights pulled in two other spinning storms, cones of flying things that it seemed might ignite at the last minute. He stopped the car and got out to clean the windshield thoroughly with his brisk, angry motions of boredom. Dust lay thick and cratered on the roadside scrub. Under the now ash-white moon, the world traveled through very faint stars, very many slow stars, very high, very low. It was a strange land, amphibious, and whether water-covered or grown with jungle or robbed entirely of water and trees as now, it had the same loneliness. He regarded the great sweep, like steppes, like moors, like deserts, all of which were imaginary to him. But more than that, it was like any likeness. It was south. The vast, thin, wide-throne, pale, unfocused star sky, with its veils of lightning adrift, hung over this land as it hung over the open sea. Standing out in the night alone, he was struck as powerfully with recognition of the extremity of this place, as if all other bearings had vanished, as if snow had suddenly started to fall. He climbed back inside and drove. When he moved to slap furiously at his shirt sleeves, she shivered in the hot, licking night wind that their speed was making. Once the car lights picked out two people, a Negro couple, sitting on two facing chairs in the yard outside their lonely cabin, half undressed, each battling for self against the hot night with long white rags in endless scarf-like motions. In peopleless open places, there were lakes of dust, smudge fires burning at their hearts. Cows stood in untended rings around them, motionless in the heat, in the night, their horns standing up sharp against that glow. At length, he stopped the car again, and this time he put his arm under her shoulder and kissed her, not knowing ever whether gently or harshly. It was the loss of that distinction that told him this was now. Then their faces touched, unkissing, unmoving, dark for a length of time. The heat came inside the car and wrapped them still, and the mosquitoes had begun to coat their arms and even their eyelids. Later, crossing a large open distance, he saw at the same time two fires. He had the feeling that they had been riding for a long time across a face, great, wide, and upturned. In its eyes and open mouth were those fires they had had glimpses of, where the cattle had drawn together, a face, a head, far down here in the south, south of south, below it. A whole giant body sprawled downward then, on and on, always, constant as a constellation or an angel, flaming and perhaps falling, he thought. She appeared to be sound asleep, lying back flat as a child, with her hat in her lap. He drove on with her profile beside his, behind his, for he bent forward to drive faster. The earrings she wore twinkled with their rushing motion in an almost regular beat. They might have spoken like tongues. He looked straight before him and drove on at a speed that, for the rented, overheated, not-at-all-new Ford car, was demonic. It seemed often now that a barn-like shape flashed by, roof and all outlined in lonely neon, a movie house at a crossroads, the long, white, flat road itself, since they had followed it to the end and turned around to come back, seemed able this far up to pull them home. A thing is incredible, if ever, only after it is told. Return to the world it came out of. For their different reasons, he thought, neither of them would tell this, unless something was dragged out of them. That strangers, they had ridden down into a strange land together, and were getting safely back, by a slight margin perhaps, but barnged enough. Over the levee wall now, like an aurora borealis, sky of New Orleans, across the river was flickering, gently. This time they crossed by bridge, high above everything, merging into a long, light stream of cars turned cityward. For a time afterward, he was lost in the streets, turning almost at random with the noisy traffic until he found his bearing. 
When he stopped the car at the next sign and leaned forward, frowning to make it out, she sat up straight on her side. It was Araby. He turned the car right around. We're all right now, he muttered, allowing himself a cigarette. Something that must have been with them all along suddenly then was not. In a moment, tall as panic, it rose, cried like a human, and dropped back. I never got my water, she said. She gave him the name of her hotel. He drove her there, and he said goodnight on the sidewalk. They shook hands. Forgive, for just in time he saw she expected it of him. And that was just what she did, forgive him. Indeed, had she waked in time from a deep sleep, she would have told him her story. She disappeared through the revolving door with a gesture of smoothing her hair, and he thought a figure in the lobby strolled to meet her. He got back in the car and sat there. He was not leaving for Syracuse until early in the morning. At length, he recalled the reason. His wife had recommended that he stay where he was this extra day so that she could entertain some old unmarried college friends without him underfoot. As he started up the car, he recognized in the smell of exhausted, body-warm air in the streets, in which the flow of drink was an inextricable part, the signal that the New Orleans evening was just beginning. In Dickie Grogan's as he passed, the well-known Josephina at her organ was charging up and down with Claire de Lune. As he drove the little Ford safely to its garage, he remembered for the first time in years, when he was young and brash, a student in New York, and the shriek and horror and unholy smother of the subway had its original meaning for him as the lilt and expectation of love. That was Allegra Goodman reading No Place for You, My Love by Eudora Welty. The story appeared in The New Yorker in September of 1952 and was included in Welty's 1955 collection, The Bride of Innisfallen. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Allegra, as we were saying before, there isn't a lot of plot in the story, and it's almost as if the landscape itself is the story or that third character. What do you think Welty does to make the landscape so visceral and so present? It's so well observed. You know, she was a photographer as well as a writer and she had an eye and you can see that she had seen these odd things. I, I feel that she didn't make it up that an alligator was on the boat, you know, wandered off the boat. <laughs> <laughs> and all of those details, they accumulate and she makes them into something that's bigger and more mythic and that gathers in power as it goes along. So this tiny story, is really an epic in a way. I found in the book on writing that Welty talked uh, at length about this story and how it came about. And I'm just going to read a little mm -hmm. bit of that. I, when she first wrote it, it was about 
a girl who is trapped in this monotonous life in a small town um, where she's having mm. this hopeless love affair. And then Welty went to New Orleans and took a long drive south of the city. <laughs> and then she went back to the story and rewrote it entirely from scratch and made a note of the fact that it was very important for her to see this girl from the outside rather than the inside. So she, for that reason, brought in a stranger through whose eyes she could see this, this woman. So she writes, it pointed out to me where the real point of view belonged. Once I'd escaped these characters' minds, I saw it was outside them, suspended, hung in the view between two people, fished alive from the surrounding scene. In effect, though the characters numbered only two, there had come to be a sort of third character along on the ride, the presence of a relationship between the two. So it's interesting to me to read this because you had the same impulse that I did, which is to consider that the landscape is the third character. Mm. What she says is because we're outside these people, the third character is what is happening between them. Yeah. And also I would point the listener and the reader to looking at the way she uses point of view in the story, alternating almost sometimes paragraph by paragraph between what she sees in him and what he sees in her. Mm -hmm. That double perspective, which contributes sort of the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It's a relationship. Yeah. I have a real affinity for that because that's my favorite thing to do as a writer, move between different points of view and sort of show and, and explore those different angles. Mm -hmm. That's something you can do in fiction that you can't do in other art forms. Yeah. And she really does dive from one to the other. And you sometimes don't even quite know whose eyes you're, you're looking through. Now, the first line of the story is they were strangers to each other. And she's just, we've just heard from her about why it was important to her that they be strangers from the get-go, but they do stay strangers in a way throughout the story. Why do you think that is? I think they do and they don't in a way, right? You know, the, the, the second part of that line, both fairly well strangers to the place. They're both equally fish out of water. I'm thinking of that catfish on the doorstep, you know. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> um, they're awed and humbled and scared by what they see. And so they have the shared experience of this place, which is strange to them. And in that way, they develop a shared history over the course of an afternoon and an evening. You know, they're not going to talk about their past. You know, he puts his hand up when she asks about his wife. And at the same time, they share this incredible experience that they probably won't tell anyone about. So, you know, yes and no. And I think that a lot of the energy from the story comes from that. Yeah. But the moment when he first sees her in the restaurant is hard to unpack because a lot happens in that moment. You know, he sees her for the first time and something about it has such an impact on him that as, as Welty writes, it has to be translated at once into some form of speculation. It has to be made somehow safe or concrete. What is that impact that the sight of this woman has? It's not necessarily attraction. Right. He sees an openness about her and a vulnerability about her. He sees that she's involved with somebody. And Welty makes it clear that he's right when she gives the woman's point of view. How did he know? <laughs> yeah. She feels embarrassed it's written all over her face yeah. or something. And she says in the beginning that people see something in her to which they either react with love or hate. And his mind has been hate. And he does, he gets cross. He's cross about her hat. Mm -hmm. But he wants to have a conventional response to her. And he knows that the response of that first catching sight of her wasn't a conventional one, that he somehow went beyond what was appropriate in looking at her, which is what she feels too. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very strange first meeting. And then perhaps that's why they're so cold after that, because there's yeah. been this moment of exposure. Yeah, I think that's right. They're trying to sort of protect themselves. And yet he she cracks him open a little bit, you know. I think he's a rather jaded, rather conventional, cold, kind of middle-aged businessman. And mm -hmm. he goes down there, and but he feels different at the end, you know. And, and remember, he does kiss her. But, you know, what did he get out of that kiss? I don't know. You know, was it a genuine impulse of connection? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think she leaves that up to the reader to decide, and I don't think it's a very romantic kiss. The romance seems to be around them in the heat and the insects and the music. Yeah. And they surprise themselves by dancing so well together. Yes. They do well there because it's a ritualized form of communication. 
they don't do well with improv. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I think is so interesting. She takes these two characters who are very limited in many ways, especially him. And she takes them on this journey and you're journeying with them. And you start feeling a sense that they've arrived somewhere when they're dancing together. She's got so many sort of literary traditions going on here. She's got sort of this descent into the underworld in a way, right? She's got the crossing of the river. And you think, you know, this isn't um, Huck and Jim <laughs> on the Mississippi. It's it's not that sense of freedom. Um, yeah. Oh, it's a little like Conrad. It's, it's yes. sort of heart of darkness. But, you know, what's what's at the end of the river? It's, it's, it's Baba. Yeah. <laughs> So interesting. Welty has this humor that bubbles up, the sense of the absurd. You know, another writer would, this would have been just pretentious and cold and dead. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we have this alligator on a leash on the ferry (laughs) when they're kind of halfway through their drive. What are we supposed to make of that? And there's a line about how, you know, this is all that's left of those fearsome dragons that used to exist, you know, that has somehow been made into this sideshow on a leash and defanged in a way. Yeah, I think they're both thinking about how tamed they are in a way. And now they're in this untamed sort of landscape. And there's that wonderful moment where he says, well, this isn't like Syracuse. And she says, it's not like Toledo either. (laughs) 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 They're not in Kansas anymore, you know? (laughs) No. Um, Why do you think there is that sort of a geographical triangle? You know, she's from Ohio, he's from Syracuse. Mm And now they're in the South. Like they're not, they're not Northerners from the same place. They're right. a Northerner and a Midwesterner. They don't connect in terms of origin. Why do you think Welty did that? Yeah, that's so interesting. Well, they're both from sort of cold places <laughs> and civilized small cities, I guess. And, you know, now they're going to take a walk on the wild side, literally. You know? Yeah. I suppose maybe it, it could also be about not giving them common ground. Yeah. They're not from the same town. They're not going to see each other again. That's important. They're going to go back to their lives. There's this passage after they get off the ferry that that just jumps out at me, and I'm not quite sure I understand it. Because just how far below questions and answers, concealment and revelation, they were running now. That was still a new question with a power of its own waiting. Mm-hmm. How dear, how costly could this ride be? Mm-hmm. What is this ride going to cost them? What What's the answer to that question? It may cost them in the sense that they have to reflect on themselves, you know, and they see their own limitations. Perhaps they see how parochial they really are. They, they start out this drive sort of joking about this place as if it's not a real place. You know, as somebody who grew up in Hawaii, I, I've, I've heard a lot, oh, you know, you grew up in Hawaii, like as if that's, I grew up in Disneyland or something, that it wasn't <laughs> a place where people lived and worked and suffered and died and got sick and got stuck in traffic. Yeah. And, and yes, it, it is tremendously gorgeous. But, you know, I think Welty may have felt a little bit like that when people respond to the South. There's a lot of ignorance, you know. Mm-hmm. The landscape is really different and weird to them. Suddenly, they stop joking about it and they have to move into a different response and perhaps see how small they are. Yeah, that's going to certainly cost them some complacency. Exactly, exactly and maybe cost them a sense of their own worldliness or perhaps make them question the relationships they're in. And it's interesting to me, it ends on that uh, memory of his, of being in New York City where he was a stranger. He was there for college, I think. And remembering a time when the sound of the subway, you know, sort of meant love and possibility, you know, of course it doesn't if you live here. Um, He remembers what it's like to be young. To be young and to be a stranger somewhere. And, and, you know, this is the kind of thing like hopping in a car and driving off somewhere for a day just to see what's out there. That's what kids do. It's not what right. middle-aged people do <laughs> as much, <laughs> at least not what these two people are used to doing. Well, I find it interesting, too, that right after asking that question, you know, how costly could this ride be, they suddenly pull off into a graveyard. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then... And then they get to the end of the road, you know, which is a metaphor, if I've ever heard a metaphor. Um, And what happens at the end of the road? We've got Baba's place. And the dancing. Yeah. Yeah. They're in uncharted territory here. And, you know, again, I think a lot of the energy in the story comes from, you know, sort of what's going to happen to these two? You know, can they handle it? (laughs) Um, This is not civilization as they knew it. Yeah. And this, this isn't relationships as they know them. This isn't how men and women communicate. 
Right. Um, and is it okay mm-hmm. not to communicate? Is it okay to be in the car together for hours without speaking? Yeah. They're just so overwhelmed. And you get the sense they're driving. And at one point, he has to stop the car to clear off the insects from the headlights. You know, that's how much they're overwhelmed by this pestilence of gnats and mosquitoes. And they're looking around at the people as well as the animals and the creatures. And they're all so foreign to them. I love that moment where the the man is walking in the same direction. He tells them, you know, you're almost at the end of the road. And they don't understand that he's asking for a ride. Yeah. (laughs) So they just... Keep going. Thank you and keep going, you know. Yeah, they don't speak the language at all. <laughs> no, they miss all the cues around them. Yes, yes. Even in the bar, like they don't really understand the kind of social things that are happening around them. Mm-hmm. They don't understand that, you know, someone's come in and sworn and, and then everyone's going to ask forgiveness because there's a lady there. And Yeah. And meanwhile, there's a goose that wanders in. Right, who she thinks is sort of learned. <laughs> <laughs> While they're dancing, she says, oh, okay, now he's going to be able to see the big bruise on my temple. Yeah. What do we think that bruise is from? Yeah, you know, is, well, to suggesting that she had been abused in some way or is in a fight or escaping something. And she feels so sort of wounded and vulnerable, which is what he picked up on in the beginning. And, and she's afraid that he's going to sort of read her history, but she also kind of wants him to, which is interesting as well. So, yeah. so like the landscape around them, which has these sort of hidden depths, you know, they also, they have this veneer of civility and conventionality. And then underneath there's pain, there's disappointment, there's suffering. Each of them has it too. And also that there's a line early in the story about how they're, they're courting imperviousness. Mm-hmm. They want to seem invulnerable to everything around them. Yeah. And, and that was something Welty picked up on in that essay about the story, which she, she says, the vain courting of imperviousness in the face of exposure is this little story's plot. So in her mind, the plot is about them hiding, yeah, trying to hide in vain, I suppose. Yeah. Um, because they, they have exposure. They are exposed. And again, I think that's why the dancing is so important, because there they're able to communicate with each other without exposing certain things in a stylized kind of way. As I said, they do well with convention. <laughs> they're, they're able to adopt this ritualized courtship. But it seems to be a real moment and a sort of magical moment between them. Yeah. And then they get back in the car. And as you said, he pulls over and he's kind of angrily wiping bugs off the window, yeah. or doing it with the brisk, angry motions of boredom. Yeah. So suddenly he's bored. <laughs> well, they're returning. They're coming back to the surface in a way, right? And, and then maybe that's why the kiss is this cold kind of conventional thing. He himself doesn't know if it's gentle or harsh. Yeah. Strange thing not to know. And then they sit there with their faces touching, not kissing for quite a while, which is a much more intimate thing. Yes. I was almost disappointed when he kissed her. Yeah. In a way, I thought that was anticlimactic. But they're coming back now. They're coming back to their familiar world. To how people behave. Yeah. How normal people behave. Yes. And that's a point that she wanted to make. And it's a really interesting and good point. And then they see those fires and he has this idea they're driving across a face and it's the face of a falling, flaming angel. Yeah. Um, So something has fallen. Yeah. Something with maybe mystical potential or it's hard to know. You get a sense of loss and a sense of revelation and you get a sense that they're a little scared. She's relieved that they got home safe. Right. And -hmm. I don't think that's just that she was afraid they'd have a car crash. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she sleeps through the drive because she, she can't face it. She's just like, oh, it took it. She left it all in the field. And Welty never tells us if she is having an affair. I, I know from what Welty writes in that essay that she was having an affair and yeah. perhaps it was an unhappy one and perhaps that's where the bruise comes yeah. from. But She decides to leave that a little bit ambiguous there. Yeah, we don't get to know. I, I, I would also like to say, you know, when they are at this in this magical, crazy Baba's place, what does he ask for? A ham sandwich. When they're making <laughs> shrimp, they're making this he crazy won't, he shrimp. Won't touch the shrimp. <laughs> you know, that's what you eat there. You know, you come for the yeah. shrimp. And she wants water. She doesn't want to drink. She wants water. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't want to drink or eat. And they didn't eat lunch. So, you know, they're you know. two very conservative people, <laughs> really. <laughs> Two conservative people taken completely out of their element, thrown in it together to somehow, you know, find something different. 
And then they come back and you have a feeling that they're going to make a myth out of this for the rest of their lives. This is going to be a moment in their lives that they're going to remember forever. But they're not going to talk about nope. it. It's, <laughs> it's going to be the story not told. Yes. They can't go back to their you know, lover and their wife and tell this story no. because it would raise questions. Absolutely. What, how do you interpret the title? No place for you, my love. Yeah, I thought about that. <laughs> and who's speaking and, and to whom? <laughs> yeah. I was thinking of it two ways. You could read it um, that there's sort of no place for love, you know, that, that, that the title could be addressing love. No place for you, my love. My love has no place in this world. Mm-hmm. Or you could read it as, nope, this is no place for you, my love, my dear. You know, you, you don't mm-hmm. belong down here. It's interesting because it implies someone else is speaking, you know, this is wealthy speaking to her characters or, or us as readers telling them, get out of there. You don't belong yeah. there. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's a great title. Um, and the story supports, you know, these different interpretations, uh, both of them. I mean, as we were saying at one point, almost every line in the story allows an interpretation, you know, that it's so seeded with ideas and possible thoughts about the characters, about the place, about the landscape. I don't know quite how she maintains that intensity. Yeah, it somehow it keeps building and she's not afraid of being slow. She's not afraid of letting it unfold. So as a reader, it requires a little patience, you know, as, as you move along and then it builds and builds in power so that this one story, um, it's almost like a novel. <laughs> it's it's a real it's an epic, as I said. It's it's it, it's got this scope, which is so interesting to me, that it could be small and big at the same time. I think that's especially because she's making us fill in the backstory. Mm-hmm. You know, she gives us some little hints, and then we have to do that work yeah. of writing the rest of the novel in our minds. Yes, you know? yes. She leaves those gaps strategically. Yeah. Even whether there actually is someone walking towards the woman when she enters the hotel. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're creating stories about each other, you know, in their minds. Mm-hmm. So that's another thing she's talking about, how we write stories about the people that we're with. Do you think there's um, other work by Wealthy that people who really love this story should turn to? Oh, well, I would read Delta Wedding, which is a novella. And look at how she works with heat there. <laughs> and I would read some of her other short stories and look at her different voices and, and as I said, the different dimensions of her work. She is funny. She is profound. There's that story, A Death of a Salesman, the story, A Well-Worn Path. And, of course, on the podcast, Joyce Carol Oates read her other story, uh, Where Is That Voice Coming From?, which is, yeah. again, a very different project. Yeah. Um, but I think all of those would be really interesting for people to to read. Well, thank you so much, Allegra. Oh, thank you for having me. This was such a pleasure. Eudora Welty's books include The Robber Bridegroom, Delta Wedding, Losing Battles, and The Optimist's Daughter, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1973. A winner of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the Order of the South, and the National Medal of the Arts, among many other awards, she died in her hometown, Jackson, Mississippi, in 2001. Allegra Goodman is the author of two short story collections and six novels, including Catterskill Falls, Intuition, and The Chalk Artist, which was published in 2017. The recipient of a Whiting Writers Award and the Salon Award for Fiction, she lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You can download more than 150 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.